0: The Beatific Vision in Baptist Dogmatics. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, Spotify, uh, iTunes, of course. Uh, you can find the podcast in, on any of those outlets. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button just underneath the screen here and the bell for continued notifications. Um Baptist dogmatics is one of those difficult areas of theology because, you know, up until John Gill, there really wasn't a thoroughgoing systematic treatment of, uh, of Christian theology coming from Baptists. Um, you know, the most thorough work you get in Baptist circles, uh, you know, obviously, aside from the Confession of Faith... Uh, would be something like *Vindiciae Veritatis* from Nehemiah Cox, dealing with the uh, the heresy of Thomas Collier. Um, that's a pretty good treatment of Trinitarianism and and uh, and Christology and so forth in defense of the orthodox position. So that comes from a Baptist. You also get, um, you know, like a lot of work from Benjamin Keach. Most of it would be, you know, exegetical theology, or what we would term today as biblical theology. If you look at something like tropologia, uh, types and, and figures, uh, metaphors of the in the Bible, it's really a work in, in, in biblical theology. Uh, it wouldn't have been called such then, but that's what we would call it now. Um, and, and they're expansive, very helpful works, but you don't see a, a systematic treatment of Christian dogmatics from the Baptists until you get to a person like John Gill in the 18th century, who gives a very thorough treatment of theology in his uh, body of doctrinal and practical divinity. And we're going to look at some Gill today. But the, the first thing I would like to do is, is begin with chapter 31 of our confession, the Second London Confession, chapter 31 of the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead. Paragraph 1 says this, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Um, The beatific vision is basically, it's expressed in Scripture in places like Matthew 5 and in places like 1 John 3, 2, we shall see him as he is. In Matthew 5, you have the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So you have these promises throughout Scripture, really in both Old Testament and New Testament, that that center around some kind of a vision of god and again that's that's across the old testament and the new testament you don't have to go looking far to find promises made by god given to the people of god that they shall see god all right and so the the question then becomes okay what is that exactly because the other thing that we we confess you know again going back to the confession chapter 2 is that God is without body, parts, or passions. He is invisible, um, and so he cannot be perceived with the uh, you know physical sight. He doesn't extend through space. So when we're talking about a, a vision of God, what exactly do we mean, and what does Scripture mean when it talks about seeing God? We shall see him as he is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to see God if God is immaterial, immense, infinite, invisible, does not extend through space, without body parts or passions, according to the language of the Confession? How then can we helpfully speak of or meaningfully speak of seeing God? Well, let me add a little bit of context, historical context, to the Confession. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages uh, has a a lot to say about what would be called the beatific vision. Again, the beatific vision is just referring to the scriptural promise that we shall see God. And there have been different opinions as to what the beatific vision is, what it consists in most uh, predominantly, uh, and and so forth. But there is a beatific vision. You can't get away from that fact uh, given the promise of Scripture. Thomas gives thorough treatments of the beatific vision in multiple places, but one of those places is obviously in the uh, Summa Theologiae in uh, volume one. Uh, And upon entering into discussion on, on question 12, which is how God is known by us, he asks the question right off the bat, whether any created intellect can see the essence of God. So, Right off the bat, you're you, when you when you ask uh, about whether the intellect can see the essence of God, uh, that question bypasses, in a sense, the optical physical sight provided to us through our you know uh, anatomical eyes, if if I could put it that way whether any created intellect can see the essence of God. Now, you got to understand something about the anthropology that Thomas is working with here. Man is body and soul. The intellect, however, doesn't consist in the body. It is in the soul, uh, along with the will. Those are really two of the the, the primary, I guess I could call them, faculties, in, in the soul of man. Um, and so even without the body— you know, it, let's say upon our death, we are we, we would say we are absent from the body, present with God. We are present with God, even though we don't have our body. We don't have our physical eyes. We don't have the anatomy that would allow us to uh, navigate the world like we're used to navigating the world right now. But we would still have our intellect and our will, okay? Because that those those two things are faculties of the soul, and the soul— being the form of the body can subsist apart from the body, okay? So when we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, we still have our intellect, we still have our will, but we don't have the, you know, physical faculties provided to us by our body, namely our, uh, our physical sight, our optical sight, and so when Thomas asks the question, whether any created intellect can see the essence of God, he's really asking a question that only has to apply to the soul. And he's assuming in that question that the function of the intellect or what the, the significance of the intellect within this context is still significant and meaningful and operative, even uh, apart from the body. Okay. Um, now we see a little bit of that in the confession. If you go back to uh, chapter 31 and it's and it's talking about uh, the state of man after death. Um, before the resurrection, the confession is saying that we are with Christ, after death, we are with Christ, and we behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. Okay, so there's a little bit of that in the confession where it's assumed that we behold or see, God even though we are without our bodies so in our soul we see God even though we do not have our bodies right so our souls are in the presence of God beholding God even prior to the redemption or the resurrection of our bodies so this is what thomas is this is this is thomas's trajectory here he's answering he's he's going to say on the contrary to four objections he says on the contrary it is written we shall see him as he is. The objector is saying, no, you can't see, the, the the created intellect cannot see the essence of God, all right? And he's saying, on the contrary, it is written, we shall see him as he is. He's quoting 1 John 3, 2, and then he says, I answer that, since everything is knowable according as it is actual, God, who is pure act, without any admixture of potentiality, is in himself supremely knowable. Um. So to break this down just a little bit, I can't go into everything that this entails here, but what he's saying is that everything exists insofar as it's actual. It's in act. The camera I'm looking into right now is in act. It has the potential to be otherwise. Like I could throw it on the ground and destroy it. Uh, I could I could move it. Um, I could make it lower. I could make it higher. I could turn it off. I could turn it on, right? So there are all sorts of potentialities that this camera has Uh because of what it is, because of its nature. All right. God has no. So it's in a sense, the camera that I'm looking into right now, or even a human being, isn't as actual as they could be. They are not. They are. They. There's all sorts of potencies, potential potentialities, passive potentialities within created being. All right. I'm a created being. This camera is a created being and so on. In God, there's no passive potency. Which means he's as actual as something in act can be, right? There is nothing else in him to be actualized. He is pure actuality. Um, I think Ed Fazer says something like, you know, he's the unactualized actualizer. And so what Thomas is saying here is something, something is knowable insofar as it is actual. If it's not actual, you can't know it, right? So if this camera wasn't actual, in front of me right now. I wouldn't know it. I wouldn't see it. I wouldn't interact with it. Um, If my wife wasn't actual, I would have never known my wife, right? So, um, So Thomas is laying out a very basic article of common sense. Since everything is knowable according as it is actual, God, who is pure act, without any admixture of potentiality, is in himself supremely knowable. So if something is known because it's actual, and if God is the most actual then God is most knowable. So he's saying absolutely, contrary to these objectors, God can be known or seen uh, because he is supremely knowable. And he goes on, but what is supremely knowable in itself may not be knowable to a particular intellect on account of the excess of the intelligible object above the intellect. Now, to simplify that, he's saying, he's essentially saying God is so knowable that it's difficult for us to know him. Have you, have you ever, um, has something ever been right in front of your face? It's so obvious, uh, that you actually don't even, you don't think about it. You don't, um, uh, you, you don't apprehend it, so to speak, and you certainly don't comprehend it. Um, and there's this whole, you know, uh, there's this whole strategy, you know, in, And, you know, spycraft and espionage that, you know, if if you don't want to be detected, you hide in plain sight. And um, in a sense, something is so knowable, you know, hiding in plain sight, for example, that is, you are so intelligible and so knowable to the person you're trying to elude that they don't even pick up on you. And then Thomas uses another example. He says, for example, the sun, which is supremely visible, cannot be seen by the bat by reason of its excess of light so in other words the bat that's allergic to light you know um, can't see the sun that's not a defect in the sun right the sun is supremely visible um and and it's actually so visible that it hinders the bat from properly perceiving it so he's saying that's kind of what we're dealing with when we get when we're talking about god and the divine essence uh that it's so supremely knowable that we dim creatures have a have a difficult time, have a difficult time perceiving uh, God, um, and he says therefore some who considered this held that no created intellect can see the essence of God. This opinion, however, is not tenable, for as the ultimate beatitude of man consists in the use of of his highest function, which is the operation of his intellect. That's what separates us from the animals. If we suppose that the created intellect could never see God, it would either never attain to beatitude, happiness, or blessing, or its beatitude would consist in something else beside God. So notice the implications of the position here. The implication of saying that there is no be- uh, beatific vision, and that there is, if there is a beatific vision, it's not of God. I- imagine the implications for a moment. The implication would be that something that's not God is actually what's responsible for our supreme happiness, our supreme blessedness. And so there has to be a sense in which we, we apprehend or perceive the divine essence. The question then becomes, in what way do we perceive the divine essence? And it's not through our physical sight, it's through the intellect, right? Um, and so Thomas says, you know... Uh, it, hence, it, it must be absolutely granted that the blessed see the essence of God. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that the blessed see the essence of God through, again, through the optical sight uh, of, of their anatomical eyes, but that they apprehend God in the intellect, right? There's a knowledge of God that can be called a vision of God because it's the clearest— um, apprehension of God that we can have unfettered by sin or any hindrance or distraction. Um, I, I wanted to get to Gil because Gil actually helps us uh, to to kind of clarify our understanding of the Beatific Vision. There's a, a lot more on Thomas that we could do, but I did want to get to Gil because this is, after all, an episode on uh, the Beatific Vision from Baptist Dogmatics. Um, there's several places where Gil mentions the uh, beatific vision. One of those places is of the blessedness of God um, and, and this is all in his body of uh, doctrinal and practical divinity. So one of those places is uh, of the blessedness of God. One of those places is uh, manif- uh, the manifestation of the covenant of grace in the particular in the patriarchal state. The other obvious place, and the place we'd most expect to see a discussion on this, is of the final state of the saints. And in the the final state of the saints, Gill says this. He says, In the enjoyment of God himself, who is the chief good, who is the portion of his people now and will be their portion forevermore, in enjoying communion with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Father, Son, and Spirit, in the highest perfection and without any interruption and to all eternity, in the beatific vision of him, in beholding him as he is. He's using that language that Thomas used from 1 John. Not his nature and essence, so as to comprehend it, right? Now, what he's saying there is, he's not saying that we're not, in a sense, seeing the essence of God. Thomas is saying that, in a sense, we see the essence, the divine essence of God. We don't see it visibly in the sense that, you know, a material object is perceived through through anatomical eyesight. Uh, no, Gill is saying no. We don't we don't perceive or see the, the nature and essence of God so as to comprehend it. So this isn't a comprehensive vision. And then he says, but they shall see Him so as to have clearer, fuller, and more distinct apprehension of His perfections and glory, especially as shining in and through Christ, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Uh, sorry if you hear my kids in the background there. <laughs> uh, they just woke up from their nap and running around and playing. and uh, It's always so much fun to see like, if you just watched your kids play, you, you just sit and watch your kids play. You don't interrupt. You don't say anything. You don't stop them. And you just watch them play. Uh, and there's something very beautiful about that and and precious. But, but there's also something really hilarious about it. When you see how they've kind of developed their own economy in a sense. Like ways of interacting with each other and bartering with each other and dealing with each other. Um, it's a lot of fun to watch that. Anyway, that was a total... Um, Digression from what we're talking about here, but um, so anyway, getting back to the beatific vision, uh, John Gill has a similar has has something very similar to say about the beatific vision as does Thomas Aquinas. Now, John Gill is bringing in a, a christological aspect that we didn't see in Thomas, but would not be rejected by Thomas. If that makes sense, there is a christological aspect to this. Um, and particularly when he, when he, when he says, but they shall see him so as to have clearer, fuller, and more distinct apprehensions of his perfections and glory. We're not going to comprehend him, but we'll see him so as to have clearer apprehensions of those things, especially as shining in and through Christ. All right. So, uh, Owen has a fascinating John Owen has a fascinating discussion on the beatific vision through Christ. Um, if you look at, you know, um, uh, Hans Boersma has has done work on the beatific vision, uh, some great work on the beatific vision. Who who doesn't emphasize the christological aspect of the beatific vision as much as someone like John Owen would? Uh, Thomas Aquinas doesn't as much as someone like uh, John Owen would or or Gill in in the particular case of of this section of his dogmatics, uh, but. Um, but nevertheless, it's there, and, and the and the positions or the emphases are compatible with one another. So, uh, it's not mutually exclusive to say at once that we see the divine essence in our intellect, and also that we preeminently see God through Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is mediator. Um, uh, you know, I don't think that there is a... Um, uh, a contradiction in those two positions. I I wouldn't even call them two different positions, just two distinct emphases that I think can complement one another and be brought together in the same, you know, reflection and explanation and exposition of the doctrine of the beatific vision. Um, When you think about how this, you know, the portion that we read in the confession has to do with the beatific vision before, you know, our, the resurrection of our bodies but then the question becomes, okay, well, does the beatific vision stop upon the resurrection of our bodies? And the, the answer is absolutely not. I mean, the beatific vision is the very height of our redemption. It's what we look to, and it's our reward. It's it's the promise that God gives to us. The height of the Christian life is the reception of the beatific vision uh, in the fulfillment of that life. So no, the beatific vision doesn't go away when we receive our bodies. Do we still perceive something of the essence of God in our created intellect analogically? It'll always be analogical. The answer will be yes. Do we perceive something of God through our created anatomy? And the answer would be yes, but only through the person of Christ incarnate, right? Because the Son of God maintains and retains his human nature on into eternity, and so when when our bodies are raised, you know, and our souls are rejoined with our bodies, yes, we will have that uh, beatific vision uh, in the intellect, in our intellect. We will see God as he is in the intellect. Again, what what Gil describes as a more uh, clear, uh, full, and, and distinct apprehension um, of his perfections and glory. We'll have that in the intellect. But also we will see the person of christ with our physical sight because he'll he has a body right And so we'll, we'll 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 perceive god through those means as well so there'll be a, an entire a, a full orbed visio day, a full orbed um beatific vision where our intellect is satisfied and then our bodies are brought up into a participation with that beatitude according to its own, uh, you know, uh, mode of its uh, mode of um, per- perceiving things, which, you know, we we once our souls are reunited to our bodies, then we will perceive things, you know, physically, visually or whatever. Uh, if you don't want to use the word. Well, yeah, it will be physically, physically and visually. We will per- perceive things in our resurrected bodies. Yet we'll have a clean intellect, keen intellectual awareness of, uh, you know, a clearer, fuller, more distinct apprehension of God's perfections and glory as well. So um, there's a lot there that, uh, you know, I a lot there that I could unpack and I, I'm itching to unpack right now because I don't I never feel like I do this subject justice whenever I broach it either from the pulpit or or on here. Um, but, um, but at least to get you started and to say, to say this, when we're talking about, you know, Baptist dogmatics and, you know, the work of theological retrieval from a Baptist perspective, the beatific vision isn't just found in someone like Thomas Aquinas is it's not just found in, you know, someone like Anselm or, or, you know, the, 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 uh, medieval theologians we have language of the beatific vision in our in our very own Baptistic tradition, right? So among the particular Baptists, uh, this language of the beatific vision exists. It, it, it exists in our own confession. It doesn't say beatific vision, but the concept represented by that word is certainly prescient in the uh, in chapter 31, uh, paragraph one. And then, of course, we see it here in John Gill, who was one of the uh, the first kind of official Baptistic uh, dogmaticians. So Hopefully that was uh, helpful and uh, uh, edifying for you. If it was, please subscribe to the channel and share it. Uh, If it was helpful for you, maybe it'll be helpful for somebody else. The beatific vision from Baptist Dogmatics. I think it's a very interesting conversation, and I would like to broach it more. So uh, stay tuned for that. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.